As we continue to worship this morning, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 we will look at this morning. Again, this passage is a bit lengthy. It's not as long as last week. We had like 50-some verses last week, but this week only 20-some verses, but uh, still lengthy nevertheless. And while I like to read the text within the sermon as we go along today. As you turn to Isaiah chapter 15, verse 16, um, uh, we, <clears throat> we look forward and let's pray and uh, that God would teach us from his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Now as we open it up, we pray that your spirit would fill us and especially guide us into your truths. Show us, Lord, uh, the meaning of this text, not only for the people in Isaiah's day, but its meaning for uh, your people today and how we might apply it to our circumstances that we face in our world as well. Lord, may you cause us to draw closer to you as through a greater understanding of who you are, a greater understanding of your not only of your justice and your wrath and your judgment upon the world, but also, Lord, your love and compassion for the world, too. Father, help us to imitate you in in all ways, for we who are created in your image and being renewed into the image of Christ long and desire to reflect your glory, your character to uh, our world. For we know in this way we experience the, the fullness of life that you have designed for us. In this world. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the more I study Isaiah 13 through 23, uh, the more I uh, appreciate this section of scripture. I just I always am amazed. I, before I started tackling, I thought, of my, thought to myself, wow, um, what's it going to be like to preach about the judgment of God every single week uh, for about a couple months, three months or so? Uh, what is that going to have to say? But as I've come and looked at this text, I, uh, even last week, uh, two, last two times, and this time, I see, wow, this section of Scripture is just rich. It's not a section of Isaiah that we tend to focus on. Uh, but yet, I come, I've, I'm learning to see that this section of Scripture reveals so much about the character of God. And we who are God's people long to see God's people. And I'm kind of surprised as I study this passage of Scripture that it's not all about the judgment of God. Uh, there is much, uh, many other attributes of God that we learn in these, in these Scriptures. It's fitting for us, and it's, just, it's kind of a, by means of application, it's fitting that this text speaks to us in a year of where we are involved in the election of our next president. And as you follow politics, and I've, I've come to follow more politics as I've, uh, as I've grown older, you can, we all know whether, whether you're on one side or the other side of, part, of political parties, you know that politics has become very, uh, very kind of uh, angry. You know, No matter which side you are, it always seems like you're angry about the other side. You're upset with the other side, with that party or this party. You're upset with that leader or, the, or, or those leaders. You're upset because we are upset because they may not do things that, uh, that please us, that are along our ways. And sometimes, you, when you read, and I, I like to, I don't just read the, um, the news, but I like to read the comments, you know. And you see the response of America at large, or at least those that are on the internet. Maybe it's just the same ten people, but they're all very angry. It's very angry. They always they want to call names of other other people. They say, "Oh, that guy's an oh this I can't say those things." But that person is bad, and you know, and that person is evil, and there's just really a great hatred for others. Now I hope and pray that none of us are writing those kinds of things on the internet. Sometimes I think, and I get it, I understand, because I too, when I, when some law or some decision is made and uh, some particular, <clears throat> uh, uh, some, some party makes this kind of a, a statement, it makes me upset. It makes me, especially when it goes contrary to the word of God. And it's often easy for us, though, as Christians to forget who the enemy is, right? It's, forget, it's easy to forget who the real enemy is. It's not the other party. It's not the other party. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the independent, American Independent Party. Okay? They're not the enemy. We may disagree. Yes. We're thinking people and we, uh, we can, can compare each party with the word of God. And we'll find 
and that there are areas to disagree, areas to discuss. But they're not the enemy. The other party's not the enemy. The other nations are not the enemies. The other worshipers of other religions are not the enemy. We get upset, we get angry because we forget who's the enemy. We forget who's really in control. You know, and when, as we approach our election year, I find that this text is, just, is surprising to me because while I know that, we, that there is room for us in, our, in, our, in the political world to, for righteous anger and indignation, if we are to be like our God who created us and who saved us, then there must be room also for love and compassion. In Isaiah chapters 13 to 23, we find 10 oracles of God's judgment upon the nations. And as we've covered so far, these chapters tell us that we are to not trust, put our trust in nations. We're not to put our eggs and think that what matters is politics. What matters is the power that is that is that comes from being in positions of authority. What matters is not having certain people kind of owe you so that you can pull strings and call favors to accomplish what you need in this world. Our trust is in to be is always to be in the Lord who is sovereign and almighty. We find I believe we'll see this time and time through these sections in Isaiah thirteen to twenty three. However, as we look at each oracle, each of the ten oracles, we've looked at two of them today already. We'll look at the third one uh, this morning. We can learn from each oracle in that with a distinctive truth. <clears throat> and in this third oracle, the oracle of Moab, the burden of Moab, that we call it, in Isaiah 15 to 16, it reveals to us certain attributes of God. Surprising attributes, because when we think of the attributes of God that are associated with judgment, uh, we think of things like God's justice, God's wrath, God's omnipotence, his power. But in this burden of Moab, where God prophecies of the wailing of Moab at, the, at the, his hands, his, by his power, we also surprisingly see the compassion of God. We see the mercy of God revealed in this text. And not just for his chosen nation, Israel, but for a compassion for the very ones whom he is judging the very ones that he is condemning, prophesying of their future judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. And I hope as we study this text, we will learn from the character of God. We will learn to have compassion even for our enemies. Now, as a little bit of a, just overview of the Moab, to give us understanding of Moab, the southern kingdom of Judah <clears throat> was surrounded by a variety of nations. I just found this map. On, it's really tiny, so only that's why I encourage you to sit in the front row so you can see it in the future. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah was surrounded by, many, by various nations at this time in Isaiah's days. To the immediate north uh, of of Judah is the, the northern kingdom of Israel. The, uh, the divided, there were two divided kingdoms, divided kingdom period. To the farther north of Israel was the kingdom of Aram, so modern-day Syria. Now to the west of Judah, towards the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, was the small little nation of Philistia, which you'll see there. To the east of Judah, across the Jordan River, across the Jordan River and across the Dead Sea, were three, uh, also three smaller nations of Ammon, Moab and Edom. And if you think of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, all three of these nations were essentially distant relatives of the nation of Israel. Go back to Genesis and you see how each of these nations, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, came about. And you realize that Edom were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, brother of Israel. So these are practically like, uh, uh, like cousins. Ammon and Moab were descendants of Lot. Abraham's nephew. And so these were these nations were not unfamiliar to the Israelites. They were, in a sense, relatives. They, if you go far enough back, they were related. 
And for Judah, directly across the Dead Sea was the nation of Moab, the nation that, we foc- that is foc- the focus of our text this morning. Moab was a nation that's bounded on the north by the, what's called the Arnon River. Really, the river, it's a, it's a wadi. It's kind of like uh, during the rainy season, it's a river, but during uh, the rest of the season, it's just it's dry ground. By the south, by another wadi called Z- the Zered River. To the east was the Arabian Desert, and, to, and bounded by the west was the Dead Sea, and uh, to the further off is, to, is Judah. Now, the Moabites were often at enmity with Israel. Even though they were related, they were often at enmity. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, for instance, Balak, the king of, of Moab, <coughs> hired, if you recall, Balaam, that prophet, to curse Israel. But Balaam couldn't. Balaam couldn't because he was compelled by God to speak only that which was true. So instead, he instructed the Moabites to intermarry with the Israelites, and by doing so, would lead them to worship their own, the Moabite gods and not worship God, and knew that God would then judge Israel. During the period of the judges, we learn of the, that the, of the most well-known Moabitess of all. In fact, her name, and her name is Ruth, a book, we find the biblical book Ruth named after her, who marries Boaz and becomes the ancestor of David, King David. And under King David, uh, the Moabites uh, paid tribute to Israel. But after David's death, they broke free. Now, when we come to Isaiah's day, the Moabites are a separate nation from Israel. They're not under subjection to Israel. But like all the other small nations in that region, Moab paid tribute to the mighty Assyrian Empire. But eventually, they rebelled against Assyria. They, they, along with Aram and Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, they all rebelled. They refused to pay their tribute anymore. And under the leadership of the the Syrian king Sargon II, Assyria came and basically just conquered all those nations, wiped and essentially wiped them all back. We've already kind of looked at how God predicted that Assyria would come and, and take over Israel as well as Aram. Here we see a continuation of that the Assyria would also conquer Moab. This would take place in, uh, historians believe, around 715 B.C. or biblical historians around 715 B.C., and that seems to be the event that is prophesied here in this text. Just like for Judah, God would use the Assyrian Empire to be his instrument of judgment. But unexpectedly, we get to see a glimpse of God's compassion in this oracle of judgment. And so as we look at these three parts of this oracle of judgment upon Moab, it will, it will reveal to us God's compassion for the ones he judged. The ones that he judged, we think, sometimes we tend to think, well, God must hate them. God has no compassion upon them. But we are surprised to see that God has compassion for his enemies. And I think uh, that, and we should remember that because before uh, we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we were his enemies as well. God had compassion upon us. So let's take a look then at these three parts of this oracle of Mo- against Moab that reveal God's compassion for those he judges. First of all, we see God's compassion in this oracle in the sorrow of Moab. There's a prophecy here of the sorrow of that Moab is going to experience as a result of God's judgment. The f- <clears throat> The first four verses in chapter 15, verses 1 through, uh, verse, uh, verse of chapter 15, describe how God's judgment leads to nationwide sorrow in Moab. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 15. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in, in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Kur of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple and to Dibon, even to the high places, to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Heshbon and Elaela also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. 
Now, not only do we just notice here that there's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce, but we can't by help but read here in verse 4 the emphasis upon all this wailing and crying. It's this wailing, crying. There's definitely just a picture here of sorrow that we see. Uh, there are so, unlike, if you remember, just, just also by way of observation, you remember the first part of the Oracle of Babylon, this, uh, not many places were named, and we talked about why that was, because there was a principle about Babylon. But this Oracle just, throughout from chapter 15, 16, are just, will mention so many different places, different cities of, of Moab. And most of us today are very unfamiliar to, with them. And we could talk about many of them because of their, we understand them from uh, other, other references within the Old Testament or other ancient Near East documents, as well as archaeological finds. But even as we'll mention some of these cities, we, we don't have time to discuss the details of them. But hopefully we'll just see the big picture that God's bringing judgment and this judgment causes sorrow throughout the different places within the nation of Moab. God prophesies that these cities will be quickly devastated and ruined. He says it twice in verse 1. These are and cur are, are strongholds, stronghold cities. Since uh, these cities that are prim- these cities mentioned here are primarily in the northern part of Moab. So that's why it gives credence to the view that this is Assyria that would come to attack because Assyria when they come to attack the nations it will come from the north Assyria as they come through according to uh, ancient Aries documents uh, defeats and ransacks all these cities along the way and as a result all of Moab will weep will cry sometimes we read this and we just say oh yeah, it's, they're wailing crying but just think it's basically this is war and devastation you know, I think if you could ask any Syrian today, a Syrian refugee today, uh, they will be able to relate with the descriptions here of Moab because the wars that are going on in Syria basically just torn up all their cities, all their fortified cities, and people are fleeing, and there is a lot of death. In very, in, there's probably no family that's not affected by death, and there's much wailing and crying going on. And then just as there is in Moab here, just notice all the wailing. Verse 2 tells us that Moab will go to the high places to weep, the places of worship. The weep, their wailing is reflected in their shaped heads, their, their, beard, their shaved beards, their, sack, their torn sackcloths, or their sackcloth that they wear, all symbols of mourning. Verse 3 tells us that, verse three tells us they, they're going to wail on their housetops and squares. In fact, everyone's wailing. Every Moabite is in tears because of the devastation. Verse 4 tells us that it's not just the citizens, but the warriors, the soldiers are also crying aloud and trembling with sorrow. These verses are always a sober reminder that God's judgment will always produce sorrow. But in God's judgment of Moab, we find that it's not just Moab that cries. It's not just Moab that feels sorrow. But God does so as well. God's sorrow for Moab we see in verses 5 through 9. Read vice, let's read verses 5 through 9. My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zoar and Iglath Shalishia. For they go up the ascent of Luhith weeping. Surely on the road to Horonaim they raise a cry of distress over the ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass died out. There is no green thing. Therefore, the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brook of Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. Its wail goes as far as Iglim, and its wailing even to Bir Elam. For the waters of Daimon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Daimon a line upon the fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. Again, we just see here continuing an emphasis upon the wailing and the weeping within Moab, the distress, the, the crying out, the, the fleeing, the devastation that is taking place upon Moab because of the judgment that is coming upon them. But we know that, that there's, who is speaking here is speaking in the first person. He says, my heart cries out in verse 5. And in verse 9 says, surely I will bring added woes upon Daimon. 
Now, some scholars believe that this is Isaiah that is speaking here. And certainly it is Isaiah that is as the prophet is speaking here and he's speaking, but he is speaking here for God. He's speaking on behalf of God. In verse 9's use of the first person pronoun I, and I bring added woes upon Daimon, tells us that Isaiah has no ability to bring added woes upon, upon Daimon, which is one of the fortified cities of Moab. Only God has the ability to bring added woes. And so when he says, my heart, in verse 5, that cries out for Moab, it is God who is saying, I cry for Moab. He is the one who is able to judge, but he is the one who is crying over Moab. He weeps for the Moab. He weeps for the Moabites. He weeps for the Moabites are weeping themselves. So it's, it's this picture of, you know, we heard the, the biblical principle, weep with those who weep. God weeps with those who weep, verse 5. He weeps for their desolation of their land and crops, verses 6 through 7. He weeps for their weeping. It's not just localized, but it's nationwide, going to verse 8. He weeps for there is great bloodshed, and the judgment is only going to get worse, according to verse 9. And he knows it will get worse. Why? Because he is the one that's going to bring this judgment. We observe here a very profound truth. Not so for us. It's very unlike us. When you are angry with someone, generally we don't feel compassion for them. When I want to to strike at someone or I want to lash out at someone, generally I don't feel compassion. I feel only anger and wrath. But God's wrath, in the midst of God's wrath, God's judgment, God also has mercy and compassion. God grieves even as he judges. I think the closest, the closest illustration of this paradox has got to be parenthood. The feeling that is felt by many parents who grieve whenever they must discipline their children. And even uh, yesterday, we had an opportunity to, uh, to discipline our own child. And I tell you, man, it was like a God-given illustration of how painful it was to discipline even as I only felt compassion. We grieve over the the sin of our children. We grieve because we know that there must be a penalty for sin. If we do not provide a penalty or consequence for sin, our children will only continue in sin. And so we know that the penalty will cause them sorrow. But our hope always is that that sorrow will lead to repentance and trust in the Lord. God has compassion even as he judges Moab. He does so not just for Moab, but he does so for all whom he judges. We see God's compassion through the sorrow of Moab in this oracle. Secondly, we we see God's compassion in the second part of this oracle, and that is the salvation for Moab. The salvation that is offered to Moab in the first five verses of chapter 16 in these first five verses, God in his compassion extends to, to Moab salvation, deliverance from the judgment that is coming. He offers them a way out. In verses 1 to 2, God exhorts the people of Moab to seek salvation from the people of Israel. God's exhortation to Moab, we look at in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 1. He tells Moab, send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah, by, the, by way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. According to Second Kings chapter 3, verse 4, in the, ding, in the days of King Ahab, we read there that the king of Moab was a sheep breeder. So among the many things that Moab was known, they were known for producing sheep. And it tells us in the corner of Second Kings 3, 4, that the king of Moab used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs, and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. Now when Ahab died and a new king arose, Moab rebelled. And they stopped paying tribute to Israel. They stopped giving those the hundred thousand lambs. They stopped giving the, the wool from a hundred thousand rams. But now, in their desperate need, in, their, in the face of judgment, God instructs Moab to restore the relationship with Israel. Send the tribute lamb again. To the ruler of the land. And we say, what land is that talking about? 
We see the direction. Where's that land? Well, from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. The Zion is another name for Jerusalem. The daughter of Jerusalem. The mountain is the te- really the temple mount. Send it to the temple mount. Send it to the, the center of the place of the worship of the people of Israel. Essentially, send it to God, the God of Israel. Send the tribute land to Israel. Why do they need to send this tribute land to Israel? Because they are in desperate straits and they are extremely vulnerable because of the judgment that is that is coming upon them, according to verse 2. Then, like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Amon. The Amon is that, is that, uh, is that northern river of, of, uh, of Moab. The, the devastation will be so severe that the women will be fleeing. Uh, perhaps it's a time when the men are fighting, but the women are fleeing. And then God tells them that they will flee, they will flee from the Syrian army. They will turn to Zion because the Ammon River, the Ammon River serves as the, basically the border between Moab and the nation of Israel, the nation or Judah in particular. We see here just a picture of refugees. Wherever there is war, there are always refugees, are there not? In every war, there are refugees. Today, they are the Syrian refugees that we read so much on the news. And you see the pictures, and they, they, you've got to feel compassion for them. Families, young and old, carrying whatever they could bring on their backs, and some even just escaping with the clothes on their backs, fleeing from war-torn, the war-torn parts of their lands. They are a picture of the Moabites, and refugees and desperate Vulnerable situations being taken advantage by criminals, by other nations. God tells them, go find deliverance in Israel. Send the tribute land back to Israel. Go back to Israel. Go to find salvation and deliverance there. And then just as he gives exhortation to Moab in verse 1 to 2, in verse 3 to 5, we see then how God exhorts the, how Israel should respond. Imagine the Syrian refugees were at our border. How would we respond as a nation to them? Imagine if the Moabites were at our borders, wanting to come in, fleeing from battle. How would we respond to them? God has an explanation to Israel how they are to respond to the Moabite refugees who are at their borders. Verse 3 to 5, the God's exhortation to Israel. God says to Israel, give advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. For the extortioner has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will even be established in loving kindness. And a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. God is speaking here in verse 3 to 5. Again, commentators disagree. Some think that this is Moab speaking. Some think this is maybe Isaiah speaking. But I believe that God is speaking here in all three of these verses, verse 3 to 5. And so he is the one exhorting the people of Jerusalem to help and provide refugee, refuge for the Moabites. He's not telling, this is not the Moabites saying, give us advice. Give, give us counsel. This is God saying, Give counsel to the people. Give advice to the people. Tell them what to do. Provide for them advice, instructions, so that they may be delivered out of the harm's way. The protection of Jerusalem here is described, in, in fact, in terminology that, that they are to show in the terminology of the providing shade from the sun. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. You know, if any of you have ever been to Israel or just if you've ever been in a desert or a very hot place, you know you don't want to stand in that hot place for too long, uncovered, without shade. And so you want to look for shade. You want to look for, for protection from the full blast of the sun for only shade and shadow bring relief. The people of Jerusalem are to be Moab's shade and shadow. They are to shine a shadow over them like night at high noon. They are to hide the outcasts. They are not to betray the fugitives, not to turn them over to Assyria. God calls them to be a refuge for the outcasts of Moab. 
as encouragement to Israel, he tells them two things to motivate them. First in verse, in the latter half of verse 4, he tells them that the enemy oppressor will eventually disappear from the land, as we saw, as we've read. Second in verse 5, though, more importantly, he reminds Israel of the promise of the Messianic king. The Messianic king who will sit on the throne of David. He tells Israel that a throne will one day be established in love and kindness. A judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David, and he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. So this king will be characterized, this king and judge will be characterized by loving kindness, faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. We know, we've already seen that this king is none other than the root of Jesse, according to chapter 11. He is the one whom the nations will resort to. In light of New Testament revelation, we of course know that this king and this judge is none other than the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. And he is the one whom God will establish a throne, whom he will come as a judge, where his throne will be characterized by loving kindness, just faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. And this will happen when he returns again at his second coming. But this, this is God's motivation for Israel to be, <clears throat> to be a refuge for the nations because God has promised to them that you, your nation, will be the center by which every nation on this earth will look to one day for salvation. So be that now. Be that today. Just like the Israelites... The Moabites' need for deliverance is found in the Messiah as well. We learn then a second lesson about God's compassion. That God offers salvation to Gentiles through the Messiah. Though the Messiah was promised to Israel, the salvation in the Messiah extends to the Gentiles, to those who are not Israelites, as long as they are willing to humbly submit to the king of Israel. As long as they're willing to submit, to, to, in a sense, to send the tribute to the king. Even as God judges Moab, his compassion extends the offer of salvation to Moab. Through submitting to the messianic king who will sit in the middle of the throne of David in the temple in Jerusalem. Salvation, God offers freely to the Gentiles, not just for his, who are under his judgment. Even for those who are under God's judgment today, God offers salvation through his son, who will one day sit on the throne of David, that king and that judge who is coming. And although God compassionately offers salvation to Israel, it seems to us from the rest of this passage that Moab rejects the offer nonetheless. Just like people today, pride gets in the way. And the third and final part of this oracle of Moab is the sin of Moab. The sin of Moab that we see in verse 6 through 14. God often reveals in these oracles why he judges them, why he judges the nations. And here he reveals why he judges Moab. First of all, we see he judges them for a char- the, <clears throat> the character of Mo- the Moab in verse 6. That is, it's an excessive pride. Verse 6 we read, We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. Consistently throughout the oracles, God judges the nations for their pride. Doesn't, <clears throat> there is times where he judges them for their immorality and for their other sins, but consistently throughout, he judges the nations for their pride. You see, when nations, especially the rulers of those nations, think that they know better than God, when they, define, when they decide thinking that they know what is true and not God, you can be sure that God will oppose that nation, even as he uses them for his purposes. Can't you miss in this verse the four different words used of, of, to really refer to God, Moab's pride, pride, excessive pride, arrogance, pride, and even fury, anger that they have. The idle boasts. 
uh, four of these words, this pride is really, many of these words have the same root meaning of just to, to, to be high and to be elevated. And that's what pride is when we think more highly of ourselves than we actually are. And pride, as we see in this text, in this verse, leads to basically a world of illusion. When you and I have pride, we're under, we're living in an illusion. We end up having idle boasts about ourselves. That word boast comes from a verb meaning to invent, to devise. When you have pride, you, you, you live in a dream world. You, you think of things about yourself that are just not real. They're false, in fact. A false view of yourselves that, you know, I actually think I'm handsome. Or I think I'm intelligent. I think I'm mighty and strong when everyone else knows that that's a delusion. A false view of yourself is not just dangerous for yourself. You say, well, who does that hurt? It's just me. I'm just the one thinking about it. No, a false view of yourself leads to a false view of the world. It leads to a false view of the world that ultimately leads to your, not only your detriment, but it leads to how you, to how you affect, how you interact with others in this world. Paul would even kind of allude to this kind of this idea of this illusion of, that we this idle boast in Romans when he writes of those who reject God, professing to be wise, they became fools. They are under illusion. They don't live according to truth. They live according to, to falsehoods. And they live lives characterized by falsehood. We see the character of Moab that God judges is basically their pride, their arrogance, their excessive pride, their idle boasts. And in verses 7 to 12, then, we see the consequences for this, for Moab. The consequences of Moab are found in verse 7 through 12. Three times we see in, in these verses 7 through 12 the word therefore, therefore, therefore. Each time marking a consequence for Moab's sin. Consequence number one we find in verse 7 to 8. <coughs> that Moab will continue to weep under God's judgment. Verse 7. Therefore Moab will, <coughs> Moab will wail. Everyone of Moab will wail. You will moan for the raisin cakes of Kerhariseth as those who are utterly stricken. For the fields of Heshbon have withered, the vines of Sibma as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Jazer and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. As we see a descriptive here of the produce, particularly the, the produce of grape vines, vineyards of, of, it, of Moab. That, was, that would just spread throughout the nation. It's, it's a great, in great abundance but Moab will wail because these vineyards are all trampled and destroyed by the Syrians. They will long to have the raisin cakes that were made from those, from those, from those vineyards. But they will not be able to because they have all been destroyed by the Syrians. And with the harvest destroyed, essentially, you know what that means? When there's no harvest, that's a whole year without food. It will result in famine along with the devastation of the, of the, of the land. That's consequence number one. And Moab will continue to weep under God's judgment. But consequence number two and number three are kind of a little bit surprising. Number two, in verse nine to ten, while Moab continues to weep, God himself will continue to weep as he judges Moab. Even, you know, you think God was have compassion for you know, as long as, and offers them salvation. He's a, you think when they turn away, so what's it, God was oh, I'm not going to have compassion upon you anymore. No, we find that here God continues to weep, even though they've chosen their path as he judges them. Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Jazer, for the vine of Sibma. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and, and Elela, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. Notice that end, that last phrase in verse 10. It is God who made their shouts of joy to cease. All their joy that they would have, that they had over the produce of their land, God says he has made it to cease. He is the one who is behind Moab's judgment. 
He is the one who uses the Assyrians to destroy Moab for its sin of pride. But nevertheless, God continues to weep with over Moab. He takes no joy in their judgment. Consequence number three is similar. That God will agonize over Moab's foolishness in chapters, in verses 11 to 12. Therefore, my heart will, my heart intones like a harp for Moab. And my inward feelings for Kirharaseth. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. Verse 11, notice, describes the intense feelings that God has for Moab. His heart intones like a heart. His, his inward feelings, his inward parts, really, are towards Kerharaseth. That's probably the same as the city Kerr that was mentioned in verse 1. Or the verse 1. He feels compassion. And in Hebrew, when you feel compassion, you feel strongly, you usually feel it from your inward parts, your guts. God knows that they will reject him. In fact, he knows that in verse 12, he said, points out that they're, not, they're going to reject him and they're going to go to their high places. Their high places are their places of worship. Just like you, when you go travel, you ever go to the high places, you usually find some place of worship on top there. Temples, you know, and whatnot. They will go to their false god. Their, 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 number, their number one false god was a god named Chemosh. But God knows that even as they go there to their sanctuary, to the, the high place to worship, that their prayers will be useless. They will not prevail. It will not help to save, to save them. Because there is salvation only in one. God has already made it known to them that it's through the God of Israel. But even, and he knows then that they are basically becoming, are doomed to foolishness, even as they're going to keep seeking their God for help. God feels compassion as he watches them in their foolishness turn to other gods. When we think of people turning to other religions, how do we feel about them? Do we get angry at them? Or do we feel compassion for them like God does? For that would be us. If God had not opened our eyes, God has compassion. He agonizes over Moab's foolishness, the rejection of him. And so the oracle now ends. This, the sin leads to the, ultimately the collapse of Moab, verse 13 to 14. Isaiah writes, this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. But now, so all that he seems like verse 1 through uh, all that he's written so far, something that he had received earlier. But he gets a, a kind of a, a new revelation. But now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. So by the time of when verse 14 is given to Isaiah to, uh, to, uh, as, a, as a vision, God declares that Moab has three years left. In three years, Moab will be conquered. His glory will be removed, will be degraded. His great population will be devastated. And he will be left only with a remnant. A small group of people will be left. A very, a very small group. And a very weak, weak, impotent group of people will be left. One commentator writes even about this. When the Lord is rejected, nothing can save Now, all of this that we read in this oracle of Moab was written, remember, not for Moab. It's not for Moab, but it was written for Judah, for the people of God. This is Isaiah as a prophet to the southern kingdom. It's for Judah to hear and understand. And the lesson for Judah to understand is that if God has compassion for the nations that he judges, then Israel should do the same. While not trusting in the nations to deliver, they were to have compassion on the nations surrounding them. They were to be a light, be, offer salvation, refuge to the nations. In the bigger picture of the Bible, we understand this picture. We know that it's actually, it starts all the way from Abraham when God called him to be a, and to bless him, but also that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And to the end of the book of the Bible, when we see Revelation, when God has, has a, there's a great, great multitude before him of people from 
Israel? Yes. But for also from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And God's purpose is always that there would be salvation for many, for, for the nations. And the good news, and that it would be through Israel. The good news, the gospel came to Israel first. But it was never meant to stay with them alone. Through Israel, salvation would then extend to the nations in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Now, if there's application for us today of this text, I think that that application for us, and I know for myself, as I've meditated upon this text, that we're going to, what we need to take home is that we too need to have compassion and love for the lost. Love for those who are under God's judgment. Love for those who are even our enemies, as Jesus would teach us. To have compassion upon them. Knowing that they are under God's judgment. And they are doomed if they don't turn to Christ. How will they turn to Christ? If we don't love them enough to share with them the good news of Christ. To have compassion. And not only that, just it should, the first, our first uh, act is to have compassion and proclaim the gospel, share the gospel with those who are lost. But we should have compassion upon them in every way that we interact. Yes, they may call you names. They may think of you as an enemy. But we are not to think of them as an enemy. We are not to think of them as someone to be hated. But only someone to be loved as our enemies love to have compassion upon because we too were once like them. We too were once blinded by our sin, caught up under our pride, living in a world of illusion, thinking that there is no God, thinking that we do not need to submit to him. And we became fools. Let us, like our God, have compassion on those whom he judges. We find, and I leave with just the relevant New Testament verses that points out God's compassion on those who are under judgment. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has, God's judgment is coming, but God has compassion. He shows patience toward you, toward many, all, wishing not wishing for any to perish, for all to come to repentance. And First Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We often talk about you know, the election, God's election and the God, how God has chosen and predestined his, his elect. And we understand that doctrine, but we also always must never take that too far and forget that the scriptures also teach that God has a love for the world, that God does desire all men to be saved, God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if God has compassion and love for the world, let us be like our God and let us have the same compassion and love for the world too. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this lesson from the burden and oracle of Moab. And yes, Lord, we know that Judgment is coming upon all who are proud, all who are living in sin, all who would think that they have no need for you. But Father, we thank you that even in the midst of this oracle of Moab, we see that you offer compassion, that you have compassion and mercy and love toward those who are enemies of your people. enemies of you. And Lord, may we learn to have such compassion. May we grow in our love for you and appreciation for your compassion for the lost. And even as we live in our world where there are many who many times and throughout, especially in our political year, we feel like there's just, they are like, we have an anger towards them. We can feel an anger and, and even wrath towards those who just seem like our enemies, Lord. But help us instead to have compassion. Help us to not forget who the real enemy is, Satan, 
and the cause of our enmity, sin. And Lord, that sin, you offer deliverance from. Through the one who will sit on the throne of David, whose, whose kingdom you will establish, whose, who will reign with justice, loving kindness, faithfulness, and righteousness. That one who came and died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended to your right hand awaiting for the day when all the prophecies of scripture, all the promises of his glorification will be fulfilled when he returns to sit on that throne. And until that day, Lord, until that day of the Lord when judgment will come upon all the nations, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to not be your instruments of judgment, but help us to be your instruments of mercy and compassion. Help us to be your instruments of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Cause us to love our enemies, to love the lost, to love those like Moab. Extending them to them the same mercy and compassion that you have extended to us. Knowing, Father, that you are not slow about your promises. That the day of judgment will come. And, Father, we know that your desire is that none would perish. You desire all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to lead many to that truth just as you've used others to lead us. These things we pray, Father, as a church, as individuals, that you would use this church, Father. Make us such a church, a church of compassion, a church of love to our world, a world under judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.